The Anchored City podcast is recorded in Anchorage, Alaska, on the traditional lands of the Denina Athabascan people. I have heard the oldest stories that the wisest man never told. And I cast aside my worries And just went digging for gold And I will scale the highest mountains Looking for the bluest blue But of all the roads I'll ever walk I just, I can't have Welcome to the Anchorage City Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Kiekenfeld. Anchorage is what sociologists might call a primate city. Mark Jefferson, writing in 1939, in a now influential article titled, Why Geography, the Law of the Primate City, defined a primate city this way. Cities grow by excess of births over deaths and by the attraction for opportunity for employment. The opportunity for ready employment which makes men throng to certain cities, is sometimes given by the productivity of the region, sometimes by advantageous location on the lines of communication, and sometimes by men who know how to turn ideas into realities. Usually several of these factors act together. Once a city is larger than any other in its country, this mere fact gives it an impetus to grow that cannot affect any other city and it draws away from all of them in character as well as size. It is the best market for all exceptional products. It becomes a primate city. Another definition states that the primate city is not only a manufacturing center. Typically, it's a governmental center, the financial center, the educational center, the intellectual center, the transportation and communication center, the manufacturing center, and the center of just about everything. According to David W. Smith, today urbanization can be broadly understood as the social, geographical, economic, and cultural impact of cities beyond the physical area of which they occupy on the Earth's surface. While these thinkers are thinking of primate cities in relationship to a country or a region, it's not hard to see the relationship between Anchorage and the rest of Alaska in these statements. On this episode, we're considering the effects of urbanization in Alaska something that's often referred to as the rural-urban divide in the state. We are looking at this divide as one of the heads of the hydra that is homelessness. Joining me on this episode are Jasmine Boyle from Rural Cap and Brian Wilson from the Alaska Coalition on Housing and Homelessness. We talk about the rural-urban divide in Alaska, the need for housing of all kinds across the state, the reality that those experiencing homelessness in Anchorage are not just Anchorage's homeless, but Alaska's. And we talk about doing the right thing. Here's our conversation. I have yet to cross, and I have dreamed of faraway places where imagination just gets lost. And I would search the wide world over for one proverb that is true. But of all just, I can't 
I'm Jasmine Boyle. Um, I am honored to be the Chief Operating Officer here at Rural Alaska Community Action Program, often called Rural Cap. Uh, we're a statewide organization that does poverty alleviation in the state, across the state, and have been doing this work for um, almost 60 years. Um, I'll share that I came to Rural Cap as an external partner who joined the team last year, uh, primarily because of my partnership with the organization on work around housing and homelessness across the state. Um, my background began in child welfare. I spent some time working in um, business development around the world globally. Very, very lucky to do that work, uh, but luckier still to return to my passion, which is helping all humans have access to a safe, warm home. Uh, where they can grow, however it is that they and their family would like to grow. And so always an honor to be on a call with Brian and talk about the stuff the two of us uh, care very deeply about. So thank you for having us, Joel. You're welcome. Brian, you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. Um, thanks for having me. My name is Brian Wilson. I use he, him pronouns. I am located over here in Juneau on Lingadani. Uh, I am the director of the Alaska Coalition on Housing Homelessness. Uh, we are what's called a HUD continuum of care uh, organization, which basically means we're responsible for uh, planning the homeless response uh, network for a certain region. And our region is the entire state of Alaska, with the exception of Anchorage. So we have a sister organization that we work really closely with, the Anchorage Coalition to End Homelessness. Uh, but our focus primarily is on uh, rural Alaska. Right. So you guys maybe started answering this question already, but what is, what's your history for both of you, your involvement working directly with folks who are experiencing homelessness? Go for it, Jasmine. Well, gosh, Joel, um, I myself have my own lived experience from my teenage years, um, though I like to point out that that was many, many decades ago in a much warmer climate. Um, I don't often share that, but I do share that when I think it's important to um, acknowledge that people who experience housing insecurity or homelessness can manifest those challenges in many different ways. Um, but I, I started my career in child welfare, so I worked with young people coming out of human trafficking and gang involvement in inner city areas, and many of those young people were um, certainly survivors, but also people I would call victims or survivors of the foster care system. And so my first experience with unsheltered homelessness was actually um, teenagers I was friends with who did not have a safe place to live and chose to make themselves a safe place to live um, in a way that really opened up the accessibility of violent folks and folks that had ulterior motives for their lives that preyed upon them. And um, you can't unlearn, unsee, or unfeel those things. So it's always been a passion of mine. Um, and I don't know any human beings who don't require a safe, warm home um, to live their lives in the most comfortable, sustainable, healthy, forward momentum way possible. I mean, I think it is the quintessential American dream. So I'll share that for me, it's always been a core part of my professional work, but also as the child of refugees, my parents came to this country to find a safe, warm home that they could pass on to their kids. And so I like to think I pick up a little bit of that family legacy um, in a really unique way on unceded land here in Alaska. So very personal and professional for me. Um, and I'll turn it over to Brian. 
Yeah, thanks, Jasmine. Um, similarly, I come from a family that um, has had struggles in houselessness in the past. Uh, personally, have been in that situation of having eviction notices on the door um, and uh, getting through um, those challenges. And professionally, I've always been in positions of community service. I started actually in municipal government work uh, in the city of Olympia, Washington, uh, primarily focused on uh, neighborhood planning in a downtown core that served as really like the the, the hub for uh, social services. Uh, and so it was deeply connected to the work there. I moved up to Alaska in 2015 uh, and worked with the Alaska Mental Health Board and the Alaska advisory board on alcohol and drug abuse uh, in for the state of Alaska, and then moved into this position. Actually, I was the first uh, full-time employee for the state coalition uh, here. Um, housing is just a, an issue that impacts every single one of us, and it's an issue that uh, is becoming increasingly challenging, uh, not just here in Alaska, but but nationwide. Uh, and so I've, I feel really connected to this issue uh, from just like personal background and, and, um, and, you know, it's, it's really fulfilling to follow people through the process of, um, you know, meeting them in a very traumatized state with a lot of housing insecurity and, and to see them get through systems that do work and resolve the issues that they're going through. It's, it's very rewarding uh, personally and, uh, and emotionally. And, uh, I just couldn't really see myself doing anything else. Well, thank you both for sharing with us, both your personal story and your professional story and sort of your motivation for what you do. I really appreciate that. So it doesn't take long if you've lived in Alaska to hear the term rural urban divide. Um, would, would you be willing to sort of help me and listeners understand what exactly is the rural-urban divide? When we hear that term, what are the things that we should be thinking about? Yeah, I guess I'll take the first crack at this one. Um, so this is actually, I think there's a lot of uniqueness in Alaska, although this the rural-urban divide uh, issues definitely resonate in the lower 48 as well. Uh, but specific to Alaska, this is one of the challenge, most challenging uh, topics that we face in uh, planning for a response network that spans over 660,000 square miles. Um, it is a completely different landscape in Anchorage than it is in Bethel, than it is in Savunga on St. Lawrence Island. Um, and that's really a big challenge for our organization of designing systems where transportation systems don't exist, where uh, resources are extremely scarce, where, and we'll probably get into this later, cost of development and operating programs is through the roof the further you get away from the road system. And so, in a sense, while we're charged from the federal government, our organization, to plan for this big area that encompasses a lot of different types of communities, we're, in a sense, really bifurcating our planning efforts uh, around systems that work in, say, Juneau or in Fairbanks versus those that work in Nome that have a whole lot of complicated factors in it because homelessness looks a lot different depending on where you are at in the state. Uh, and so you have to meet the need of, um, of the individuals in the, in the areas that they're at as opposed to trying to get them to mold around a system that doesn't necessarily uh, work as well in the community that they're in. Well, 
I, th I think Brian hit the nail on the head, and I certainly would underscore that I have yet to work in any community across the world where there aren't different resource availability realities for urban communities um, and different resource availability for rural communities. Um, while I am grateful to be a guest on this land and to hopefully make my permanent home here, I, I think it's really important to elevate that the history of Alaska is unique. Um, the history of land use and availability in Alaska is unique. And um, the history of governance and sovereignty is incredibly unique. And so it, I think first understanding that it's not just the United States government, both federally and the state of Alaska government, um, there's communities involved, there are village corporations, certainly the ANCSA corporations, um, there are tribal elders, and of course the, the federal government has recognized 229 unique tribes in Alaska. So when we talk about rural and urban, um, we're talking about a lot of different communities with a lot of individual governance processes and a lot of different leaders. So certainly I would start by saying it's different everywhere for each community. But I also think, as you started with, anyone that has spent some time in Alaska understands that Anchorage has a lion's share of resources. I, I don't think we need to pretend that that doesn't exist. Um, if you are a person in need of sophisticated health care, um, if you're a person who is looking for early employment in your career um, or a better education, even affordable housing, chances are you're probably going to end up at some point coming to a hub community, Anchorage, Juneau, or Fairbanks. I, I think what's really interesting, though, is not all of those communities are open to new people coming for resources to the communities. So I think there's a real tension between the reality that the lion's share of the things that we need to have our best lives currently reside in what we define as urban communities. Um, and they're not always accessible to sojourners to those communities or newcomers to those communities. But I also think that that narrative can be really short-sighted when we don't recognize that there are incredible, incredible, strong development opportunities rising out of our villages and rural communities. There's innovation, there's self-determination, there's a whole lot of stuff that the rest of us should be learning from. Um, but I think when we think about housing, that's where it gets complicated, because if we're in a true off-the-road system community here in Alaska, I don't have a city planner that I can call and say, we'd like to build five new homes because we have a grant. Um, most of our federal investments, certainly philanthropic investments, require uh, lot lines, a paved road, some utility or basic infrastructure in a way that doesn't always translate to our rural communities. Um, I'll be the first to say that uh, I live in a home that has an intermittent water supply and I'm very privileged, I'm very grateful, it works for my family. But when I share that with my friends and colleagues in the lower 48, they're blinking at me. Like, how do you live in the biggest city in the state, but you have intermittent water? It's Alaska and Alaska is rare and unique. But in that space, I think even within the state, we don't do a great job of sharing the reality that some of us benefit better than others. I'm right between two major hospitals. So should my family have an emergency in these difficult times, chances are 911 is gonna send an ambulance. I'm in the minority here in Alaska with those available. So when I think about rural and urban, I don't think about averses. I think there's only averses if we make their averses. But I think there's an opportunity to come together across the state and really think about how we share resources and opportunity 
but also how need is disproportional. And, and I don't think I need to share too much more of that with your audience, but happy to elaborate as you think is right, Joel. Yeah, I mean, this whole season, we've been kind of trying to look at homelessness using lots and lots of different lenses and what are all the different things that that interface with it or contribute to it or it touches. Um, and this idea of the rural-urban divide is one of those that has come up as we've gone along. Um, could you, could either one of you or both of you speak to, like, how does this rural-urban divide in this disproportionate availability of resources contribute to homelessness? I mean, I, the show's, I mean, this podcast is mostly about Anchorage, but I know it affects the whole state. So what's the interface between kind of that, the the disproportionality that you're talking about between urban places and rural places and how that intersects with homelessness? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think back to one of the first exercises um, I did when I came aboard the coalition, which was to answer that question of what do we have and where is it? Um, and I wanted a really easy way to demonstrate this visually. Um, and so we actually um, pulled down the hundreds of programs we know that exist across the state, what types of programs they were and where they were located, and to map them in GIS and, and create um, sort of like a heat map that shows how many beds of each type of program there are um, uh, per capita, per census area. It became immediately clear, right? I know we talk about disproportionate resources and Anchorage has a lot, but it, it was really stunning to me as somebody who was just starting to learn about the scope of our homeless response system of how deep that disparity is um, that we had in 95% of our state, zero housing first options for individuals that um, are experiencing homelessness, that we had in 95% of our state, zero emergency shelter options uh, for individuals that weren't fleeing a domestic violence situation. We actually have a pretty expansive domestic violence shelter um, uh, system across the state. But that's, that's a really big challenge to overcome considering, one, the resources that we manage that are coming from the federal government, they are entitled to every individual, regardless of where they present as, as homeless. Um, and that's great and all to learn who they are and where they are. But when the closest resource to help this person is sometimes two plane rides away, thousands of miles away, that's an immediate barrier um, that is very difficult to overcome. And so a lot of what we do, as Jasmine said, is, you know, there is to reach out to communities, try to build our capacity um, around the state, but it's challenging because oftentimes there is nobody to call <laughs> and, or if there is say an agency that exists, their capacity is so limited that in order to put together the planning process and fund stack for new programs, um, there, there's often no capacity to do that work. I'll give you an example. Uh, Nome Community Center is just broke ground on a brand new permanent supportive housing project. Extremely exciting that they've been working years to put together new 12 permanent supportive housing units. If it weren't for just the sheer will of their director, Rhonda Schneider, and I will give her a shout out because she's an amazing person. Um, you know, that project wouldn't have happened. And all the folks that are sitting in their Nome emergency shelter team, their shelter down uh, in downtown Nome would have no options to go. And in order to put that, that 
one singular program together, she had to leverage over 20 different funding sources for one singular program. The amount of time it takes to do that work um, is enormous. That's 20 different applications, 20 different uh, presentations to 20 different uh, grants that require different things. Oh, and by the way, they all have to line up timing wise for it to work as they're all leveraging against each other. It's very unrealistic for communities to add to their existing programs in the smaller communities. So it just deepens the divide when new funding opportunities come along to get those dollars diverted to the smaller communities, because a lot of time there's no individual that that has that capacity to put it together. And so that's that's a big piece that I feel is missing in this state is that technical assistance component and uh, being able to bring opportunities or bring resources to these communities to get those programs uh, that, that are appropriate for their community um, up online to start addressing that issue. Kind of a little off topic, but um, <laughs> it's uh, it when it it really is, um, and I'd love to share these resources with you afterwards uh, to show really how dramatic that 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 difference is. I would just piggyback on that with something Brian has been teaching me for four or five years. Um, you know, we're policy wonks, if I can label the two of us in our many of our conversations, but policy matters when it comes to housing and homelessness. You know, I will never stop saying that we just put billions of dollars together in two federal infrastructure packages, and there is not a single penny, Joel, for housing. So we've now got water and sewage moving to rural Alaska. We've got electric and energy efficiency moving. We've got roads and ports and airports but not a single penny of that money is coming to anywhere in the country for new housing. And yet get on any news site, regardless of political affiliation, and you're hearing about the housing crisis. Um, so thing one, um, I'll always start with saying homelessness is gonna look different in Anchorage, you know, Fairbanks and hub communities than in true rural. Um, and I think that's part of what Brian and his board taught me when I was new at this work in state, which is you can survive unsheltered, though likely not happily or comfortably in an urban area in Alaska. You cannot survive unsheltered in our rural communities. So we have what's called overcrowding. Interestingly, the federal government will not allow us to consider overcrowding as homelessness, which means when Brian and I apply respectively for federal resources, our rural communities don't get counted. Counting matters, right? It matters when we talk about certainly the census, and it matters when we talk about bringing funding into a state that is heavily reliant on federal infrastructure resources. So thing one, there, there's a real issue with the fact that most of our folks in need aren't even included in the discussion about need. I'll certainly give credit again to Brian and the board at the Alaska Coalition. Senator Murkowski and a number of others have leaned into that and are working to change those policies. That takes a lot of time and a lot of energy. But I'll also say, you know, when you think about, again, that resource divide, um, I met a brother and sister several years ago who I saw walking down the street in the snow to an event that Brian and I host around the state every year called Project Homeless Connect. And I couldn't help myself but to ask these young people what they were doing. And they explained to me that they had recently come to Anchorage from a village. 
They are brother and sister. And they said, in our village, we had about seven jobs. And we know who is going to have access to those jobs for the foreseeable future. So we came to Anchorage to get a job, to get an apartment together, and to start our lives together in the hope of the American dream, I think, that we have all been taught um, since grade school, I suppose. And their story shared with me with permission was one, they couldn't get hired because when people looked at their resumes, they didn't translate to an Anchorage resume, to a more um, a more structured, I worked at McDonald's and then I worked at you know um, this place or that place. Thing one, they had a hard time getting a job. When they were able to get interviews, what they explained to me is they were perceived to have an accent and people were reluctant to hire them, which is incredibly concerning considering that both of these individuals were Alaska Native individuals. And in my humble opinion, their accent is more, um, I think, to be elevated than certainly my California accent. And thing three, because they were unable to find a job or to find community resources, they couldn't get an apartment. And so these two young people who came to Anchorage with every expectation to join in the economy and contribute and build their lives ended up coming to an event to get their feet treated for um, winter exposure. We should be concerned that that is the path for Alaskans in our state, even if it's just two Alaskans. I think we can do better than that. And so I think, again, a piece of this is to understand that if communities have statewide resources, we need to be aware that we're probably providing statewide services and find a way to work better with that. Um, I suppose we won't have time to go into all of the, the nuance of it, but in real time, Brian and I are having probably weekly conversations about the reality that Juno, Fairbanks, and the Matsu Valley are sending many of their adults experiencing unsheltered homelessness to Anchorage, because that is the reality of what's possible. But when you remember that in real time, Anchorage is migrating people from a camp to a giant hockey arena, probably not the best solution for us to uphold as the best statewide solution. And so when we talk about unsheltered homelessness, I think we need to understand that it looks different. But I also think we need to understand that some communities are the only communities to be able to provide those life and death safety net services. But even those communities don't have the resources or perhaps even the policy enthusiasm to make that work. But it's a statewide challenge. And with the rising rates of elders across our state and what Alaska Housing Finance Corporation calls the silver cliff, this is going to get worse. And it's going to get worse for our grandmothers and grandfathers and our elders um, because now we're talking about people with fixed income who don't have affordable housing to access. And so the last thing I'll just say about this is the number of humans in Anchorage that have called me and shared things like, my landlord would like to turn my apartment into an Airbnb and I cannot find another apartment. I have a colleague at work who just opened up her mother-in-law for rent and had 70 applicants within the first day and had 40 of those individuals show up at her house to do an open house she had figured out who her next tenant was going to be in 24 hours, 
But I think about those 69 folks that didn't get that apartment, and I don't know where they go with a 2% vacancy rate. So we're not just talking about unsheltered people. We're also talking about folks like the three of us that have to live based on a paycheck and just cannot find an apartment that is affordable and are getting pushed out of their units. So I think we have our current homeless challenge, and then we have the homeless challenge that Brian and I have been watching get exponentially more difficult in the last three years. We need to plan for the problem of today, but also the problem of tomorrow. And frankly, we have to have those solutions in rural and urban because people do better when they're close to home. We all do better on hard times when we're close to our family and loved ones and places that mean something to us. So I'll get off my soapbox though. No, I think what you're talking about is really interesting. In the previous episode, I was having a conversation with Samuel Johns, who was talking about the ways people, some of the ways people end up in Anchorage and get stuck here, which is part of what I hear you saying. Um, folks get attracted to the city for whatever reason. Um, and then things either do or don't work out, don't work out. And then they end up because of resources, transportation, lack of, you know, the ability to get back home, end up staying here. So I know from like some of my background is with urban studies, this idea that cities are like this vortex that suck things in, but they also kind of push things back out in terms of like culture and media and urban values and those type of things. Um, I know you guys have already started talking about this, but what is sort of the push pull in the state with the urban, the urban centers? And I know you're, you've kind of identified them as we've gone along, obviously Anchorage, which is really like in old Chicago, um, Chicago school sociology is like this primate city that dominates the the whole the whole state or the whole, you know if you think about Alaska as a country it would dominate the whole country. But then also Juneau, Fairbanks, and the in the valley emerging as more of an urban um, environment. So what is that that kind of push pull between drawing people into the urban centers, but also then what is what are the urban centers in a sense sort of pushing back out? Um, if that makes sense. And maybe it's a weird way to think about it, but. Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think Jasmine actually did a really good job um, explaining how people end up in our larger communities. Uh, so that I guess would be the pull aspect to it. Um, for the push out though, you know, I think that, and and this is an unfortunate push out, I'll just preface that. Um a lot oh, no, of times, I didn't expect it to necessarily be super yeah. positive. <laughs> <laughs> um, if you look at the conversation of homelessness in this state, I'd say ninety percent of it, if not more, is related to what's going on in Anchorage. Um, it's the most visible. Uh, it's the most prevalent in terms of numbers in a single community. Um. But what we often do as a byproduct of that is assume that that's, and for the folks that are listening to this air quotes, Anchorage homeless people, <laughs> um, when really it's Alaskan homeless people. Um, we really need to take a holistic statewide look at this and challenge people like yourself to, and I think you're doing a great job of this, to focus and center that conversation around our more rural communities and how that the realities that those communities are faced on a daily basis are one unique to any other place in the entire country. Um, two, probably the most challenging uh, to overcome than any place in the country. And three, how that is contributing to our urban center 
housing homelessness population. Um, until that happens, it is very difficult for organizations like myself <laughs> to advocate and stand up and pull resources out into those communities. And so I, I, I think it's sort of like a problem that one, people should absolutely be going and seeking the best opportunity for them. They should absolutely be going and doing their best to secure the resources, to secure a positive life for them. But we need to really be coming and be cognizant that maybe we shouldn't just have that option be one or two cities in the state. And how can we invest not just in housing, but in infrastructure, in jobs, in economic development? How can we encourage these smaller communities that are challenged in these other areas to present opportunities to stay at home um, and not have to abandon even what little foundation they may have in their communities that are keeping them stabilized to not have to make that jump. Because I feel like we can do better as a state um, in all aspects, not just housing, um, to really prop up our, our rural areas. So, um, And I, I think I'll make it a little personal to compliment Brian. You know, about a decade ago, I was at that phase in life, gratefully, where a number of my friends were entering into child raising and sort of there was just a group of people that were contemplating, how do we grow up a little bit? My words, certainly not their words. But it's interesting that there were, I'm always trying to get people to move to Alaska and vote. Let me start with that. And so as I was trying to parcel this deal out to everyone that was silly enough to call me and ask about where they wanted to grow up, what did I hear from people? People wanted a place with an opportunity for economic development and job growth for themselves and their partners, potentially. They wanted great education. They wanted an affordable home that had access to that great education. And a lot of people wanted access to parks and walkable communities. You know, you think about those city of the future dreams. Um, these are basic basic pursuit of happiness things, right? I want my kids to have education and job opportunity. I want that for myself. People want a broadband, which you only have to think about if you're in Alaska. You don't necessarily need to think about this in other parts of the country. And so when I think about that and the question that you posed to us and, and Brian's earlier comments, I think that's what all people want. And again, we now have access to seeing how other people live across media. And I think that too helps shape our dreams. We don't have the right to tell people what dreams they want to dream. In fact, if anything, we have the responsibility to get out of their way and allow people to seek the life they want for themselves as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else. I also think it's really important to call out, and I, I want to do so thoughtfully, that um, I think many people in Alaska have a stereotype, particularly when we talk about rural, that that is synonymous with Alaska Native individuals. And I wanna be crystal clear that Brian and I have spent years working on data around homelessness in an under-resourced and overtaxed state um, across partners. But when I talk about the migration into Anchorage for unsheltered homelessness, I am not talking about Alaska Native individuals only. Certainly, there are Alaska Native individuals that are that are living through unsheltered homelessness. There are also every other age, race, orientation, personality. We're not talking about one homogenous group of people. And so I think it's really important to understand 
some of us can hide homelessness better than others because of our networks, our, our social connections. Um, and I'll certainly end with a story that early on in COVID, when uh, Brian and I had the interesting task of trying to address homelessness and homelessness in the time of a public health emergency that our folks are very vulnerable to, uh, we had just stood up the Sullivan and I got a phone call from the Department of Homeland Security and I had an individual say, hey, turns out that there are thousands of seasonal fisher people that use the Anchorage homeless shelters while they're waiting for their flights to the fisheries. How are you going to handle that? And I, with true respect, slow blinked in dead silence for a good 15 seconds thinking, I'm the homeless lady in Anchorage. What resource do you think that I have that is going to support thousands of employed people for a specific industry? Also, why have they been using the homeless shelters for decades? Feels like we could think about some workforce housing or a better solution, particularly when we're now talking about people exiting an aircraft during a public health emergency that we don't have a vaccine for with a lot of folks that haven't had quality health care for a long time. But I do think it's a fascinating statement of the challenges that we navigate that the fishing industry in that moment and the government in that moment thought that homeless services would have the best solution for that need. And I'm very grateful that a lot of smart people that were working on that found better solutions. But the reality is lots of folks use homeless shelters that are not the people you think are using homeless shelters. I've met folks that just went through a divorce, that just went through a medical challenge, a gentleman whose business burnt down um, up north of the valley, people who are everyday humans who had zero expectation that they would fall into homelessness, many of whom were not living through addiction or uh, behavioral health needs. And I think we have to recognize, particularly in the last three years, that economics will drive you into homelessness. Now, you will pick up all sorts of other needs and challenges once you are unsheltered, but the paycheck or the ability to pay your rent is 100% the differentiating factor between who we see outside and who we don't. And we can't separate that from issues of equity and issues of colonization in this state. It's a hard topic and, and frankly, a topic I often feel like I am not the best voice to represent because there are very excellent leaders in our state who have spent a lot of time and have lived experience. And I'm sure you're connecting with them, Joel. So I, I just want to always mention that it is a tremendous privilege to try to capture a very complicated set of circumstances. I hope I did it a little bit of justice, but there's so much more that I think folks need to understand about the nuance there. That I have yet to cross And I have dreamed of faraway places Where imagination just gets lost And I would search the wide world over Pausing this episode to share with you an exciting opportunity to meet fellow residents of Anchorage and engage in thought-provoking ideas. Wednesday, December 7 at 6 p.m. at Willowaw Social, a culture shift is happening. Culture Shift is a monthly event brought to you by the Alaska Humanities Forum. At each Culture Shift event, two guests take turns speaking on a topic that they're passionate about, an idea that challenges cultural norms or assumptions. Then the audience takes part in a fun, interactive, and thought-provoking Q&A to find connections between the two. 
At the December Culture Shift event, I'm one of the guests speaking. I'll be sharing about how human sustainability is true sustainability. But even if I wasn't one of the presenters, I'd still encourage you to go. I've started going every month and I love it. So consider joining us Wednesday, December 7 at 6 p.m. at Willowa Social for Culture Shift. A link to information and tickets is in the show description. Now back to our conversation. Lessons learned with the crazy long life that I lived already. And the scars I earned, I still can't seem to find the answers. And though the questions are never new, but loving you. I want to move us just a second from maybe defining the situation or the nuances that you were just talking about, Jasmine, and all the different facets to um, more towards solution. And we've been asking kind of a, um, I don't know, think about it as maybe a magical question. But if if I was able to give you all a, a magic wand um, and you could, you, your answers can be completely different. I'm sure either one of you might have a different answer. And you could do one thing no barriers, no funding issues, no capacity issues, none of that stuff, just true magic wand, like to be able to change one thing in this area around homelessness in the state of Alaska, what would you do? What would you use your magic wand for? Somebody defined this earlier in one another episode of like, so you're asking me like what head of the Hydra to cut off? And I was like, yeah, that's <laughs> that's kind of what I'm asking you, but it's sort of it getting out like if we could solve this or make a big step in the right direction, what, what should we do? But asking this magic wand question. I'd All materialize right. tens of thousands of affordable housing units with one swoop of my wand because <laughs> that's really what it comes uh, down to in, in rural communities is, is stock and the quality of your housing stock. Um, I'd mentioned earlier that homelessness looks different depending on what part of the state you're in. Um, as many people know, for a large portion of our state that don't have homeless services available or nowhere near enough in their community, homelessness plays out as overcrowding. Overcrowding to the limits that far exceed the maximum uh, homeless formula or uh, federal formula for defining uh, severe overcrowding, uh, which is their severe overcrowding definition is 1.5 individuals per room, not bedroom per room. So living room, <laughs> dining room, kitchen, kitchen, everything, uh, you know, overcrowding that um, forces families to sleep in shifts. So um, they can, because it just isn't enough physical space. Um, so that's really what homelessness looks like in our rural communities. Um, and there's been multiple studies shown of the adverse health, um, effects that living in overcrowded situations, uh, can do to an individual, uh, particularly youth who are developing, um, you know, their systems, um, and also the uh, not to mention a lot of the housing stock that we do have, uh, particularly in our villages, uh, wasn't even intended to exist in the climates that it's in. Um, so really, what is the solution to um, our housing crisis in the state? It is more housing. Um, and there are many barriers to uh, building more housing. One um, being that the costs, the absorbent costs of just getting materials to communities is um, is huge, uh, sometimes more than three or four times 
the amount it is just to get it to Anchorage. Um, the building season is extremely short. Um, housing for skilled labor to, to do the work is non-existent um, and so on and so forth. And so I think what we need to do is figure out how to get building in rural Alaska to pencil. And there's a variety of ways you could do that. You can create new funding sources. Um, we can get better at leveraging partnerships between developers to make sure that we can align our shipping. Uh, we can advocate for subsidized shipping programs <laughs> for affordable um, building supplies. So there's a, it's really more than just one thing um, uh, from a, the technical side of it, but from the overarching side of it, it's really just we need more housing, not just homeless housing, but affordable housing for, for everyone because it's sort of a musical chairs type of situation. If you create more, people will move into it and it opens up opportunities for other families. Um, so that's, that's, that's really what I would do with my magic wand. What would you do, Jasmine? I mean, you were such a good sport, Brian. I was going to say as a former street kid who will always be a street kid, I was going to hustle and wish for more wishes and then go down that. But since Brian was such a, a good listener, um, no, he's, he's exactly right. So it's in the name, right? Homelessness. It's not having enough housing. And, and I, I do want to just call out it doesn't pencil to build new housing in rural Alaska. If it did, I, I think we would all welcome a for-profit company making some profit while also building homes. Um, so I'll riff off of what Brian said and say, housing that's appropriate for Alaska. Um, rural Cap has weatherized almost 40,000 homes in the state of Alaska. And we are not the only organization that does this work. Uh, regional housing authorities run by the tribes do this work as do another, uh, a couple of nonprofits with Alaska Housing Finance Corporation. But if you pause for a moment and think about our state population and think about just one organization has weatherized, which means we have taken existing housing stock and helped them to become safer with cleaner air and more energy efficient almost 40,000 homes and our wait list fills up within an instant every time we open it in a new village and we're just one org. So some of it is also the reality that the limited housing stock we do have was not built for our climate, which is shifting exponentially in real time, but also not built for the culture and the communities intended to live there. And so I think really thinking through local wisdom, local expertise and really helping our partners locally and federally think through what's appropriate for Alaska. Because the stick building houses, I'll tell you, one of the communities we worked with, um, when the typhoon just occurred, Marbuck, one home was swept completely off of its foundation. Five families were displaced. So having to do that crosswalk with the feds and saying, yep, your data shows one home one home that was less than 2000 square feet. But when we talk about how many human beings were displaced in that, and the fact that quite likely that home wasn't built to survive Alaska anyway. So if we're gonna rebuild it, let's rebuild it the right way with the folks that have lived in that community since time immemorial to make sure that that is adapted to the fishing based lifestyle, but also that that home has the community space and the build that matches, you know, I've got friends in the lower 48 that love those tiny homes. But if you're living in a multi-generational household, which is my culture of origin, 
that tiny home looks a real, real snug for grandma and grandpa and cousins and their families and everybody else that married into my family. And frankly, I don't want to live in a tiny home with all those people, particularly if we're going to do some of the more cultural elements from, from my lineage, um, things like farming or fishing or hunting or gathering. I really don't want to live with all those people in a tiny home if we're engaged in those activities. So I, I think that, again, there's opportunity, but we need to think about that opportunity in light of Alaska. And then to Brian's point, it's the rising tide concept. Every single Alaskan benefits if we have more housing stock. And frankly, I don't care where that housing stock is, because if we build more affordable homes in Anchorage, that alleviates the pressure statewide. If we build more homes anywhere, that alleviates it statewide and it increases mobility, right? So maybe, Joel, your family someday would like to move into a different home, a better home, a larger home, a smaller home. You can't do that right now, right? And you certainly can't move rental units right now on a fixed income. So I think any new housing benefits everybody in Alaska. And I will take any type of housing in any part of this community with that self-determination piece. Thank you so much for that. I got two more questions for you. One is, what am I missing? What, what do you wish I would have asked you about? Or what's something that you would want people to know that they normally don't think about or don't doesn't come up on the radar in the midst of all the like stereotypes or the easy answers that people often carry um, around these issues? So what am I missing? Or what would you want folks to know that we haven't talked about yet? I'll go first, Brian. Okay, yeah, go for it. This one's my shortest one for the two of you. Um, look, I do this because I know a lot of these folks and I look into people's faces and that matters to me. Um, however, it, sometimes I think Brian and I have the easiest narrative in the world, but nobody wants to swallow it, as does Meg Zalatel and many, many others working on this work. But, you know, when our state was thinking differently about the state budget back in 2019, Brian and I had to do a lot of different analysis on state investment into homelessness. And lo and behold, no matter which way we sliced it, and at some point we worked with some economic professors at UAA, we worked with state and federal, state and local government, the most interesting part about our shared work on housing and homelessness is it is actually cheaper for all of us as taxpayers to do the right thing for our neighbors. And so just to elaborate on that a little bit, if you are having unsheltered homelessness in your community in Alaska today, there are certainly shelters, but a shelter is a temporary place for people to be safe and hopefully get resources. Right now, we don't have enough shelter for everybody. Again, everyone's coming to Anchorage today. I'm being a little hyperbolic. The reality is those people will not re-engage into society in the way that most folks would like without housing. So we need housing for that. However, in real time, the only alternatives we have to people living outside are API, which is not at full capacity and costs an Alaskan taxpayer about $1,500 a night. So not a cheap hotel suite or corrections, which according to the state of Alaska costs about $151 a night. And in many ways, to crudely put this, those are also shelters. They are temporary places where people can get their needs met. But the reality is, if I call the police today to report that Brian is living unsheltered in my backyard, they might come pick him up. They might tack some charges to him. They might put him in corrections for the weekend. But the reality is, Monday, he's going to be released. And where is he going to go? 
right back into my yard. And so if for any reason, I am not in a moment to feel compelled by the humanity of Brian's needs, which is totally okay. Sometimes we're not in that space. Sometimes we have other needs and priorities. I do want folks to understand that it is actually best for our collective pocketbook that by helping Brian access supportive housing, I'm not only doing the best thing that we have available for Brian's long-term health, security, stability, and sustainability, it is literally the cheapest solution and the most expedient way to keep Ryan from coming back in my yard again. And so I just, I love to share folks. The good news is if we do the right thing for people in need, we are also doing the right thing for our taxes. We're doing the right thing for public safety. And frankly, we're doing the right thing for business and industry because we're removing people from storefronts and tourist destinations. And we get to give ourselves the pat on the back that we just generally did the right thing or even better, the thing we would want someone to do for us if we had fallen on rock bottom hard times. So it's my favorite fun fact for you, Joel, but I'll turn it over to Brian now that I've stolen his thunder. Oh, no, well said, Jasmine. I guess I'll just piggyback on what you said. It's that the the best outcome that we could see when we're working with a client is preventing their um, homelessness situation in the first place. Uh, the longer somebody lives in a houseless state, the more complicated and the more expensive it gets to assist that client to um, connect them with housing and the supports around them that they need. We oftentimes just talk about our literal homeless population, but that only represents such a small piece of the pie of the overall client pool that we uh, work with statewide, uh, we have a really, really effective uh, homeless prevention uh, system across the state. Uh, we were looking at, you know, how many people who access prevent, uh, preventative services fell back into home or fell into homelessness over the next 24 months after receiving that. And it was, it was less than one in 10 um, did. So it's, it's highly effective. We have a really good system. We have amazing people moving mountains in tiny little organizations all across the state to prevent people from falling into homelessness. But the challenge we have is that they run out of money to help prevent people fall, to, to help people uh, before the budget cycle ends every single year. And so we, I think one understanding that when somebody is falling into homelessness, the cheapest option is to get that person housed as soon as possible, as opposed to ad addressing their houselessness through other means, such as an institutional setting, uh, but two, um, trying to divert them out away from the system in the, in the first place, um, which is truly the cheapest option. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think that's something that is not on a lot of people's radar. Meg Zalatel talked about that earlier in our season, that literally it's the cheapest way to handle um, the situation that we're in is to find housing for folks. So thanks for bringing that back in and, and broadening that scope to outside the city of Anchorage as well. The last question that I always ask folks is about you. So your, your personal or spiritual or self-care or mindfulness practice that you do um, that keeps you centered in what you're doing. So for you to be sustainable, what's that thing that you need to do that recharges you I mean, keeps you able to do the work that you're doing. Oh, goodness. At work, um, I'll certainly tell you, I call it being a joy thief, but I, I mean that affectionately. Um, I need a story. 
I need a story about a human being who has a new path. And I'm very grateful at Rural Cap that we have a huge portfolio of supportive housing. So I can harass my staff a little and say, tell me about a new client who moved in. And I don't need names, but I need to know. I think Brian and I get caught up a lot in the policy and the data and the big picture. And so for me, nothing is more important. And again, at Rural Cap, we do a lot of different things. I just need a story to keep me going about one human whose life is a little bit better because we got out of their way or kept a door open for them. Um, and then quite frankly, in my personal life, I spend a lot of time listening to very loud music in my garden because I, I think Alaska, anything anywhere in the vicinity of the beautiful mountains that we have available, the wilderness we have available, I find that very centering and relaxing. For me, it's, it's why we fight so hard, right, is to have access to peace and quiet and and I can't think of better self-care. The loud music, my partner doesn't necessarily appreciate, but um, he's got to take the good with the bad. So, <laughs> Yeah, I would echo that. We It is very easy to be focused on the frustrations and the challenges and the state because there are many. Um, we're trying to do something that no other state is trying to do, or at least up against odds that aren't necessarily quite as equal. Um, so yeah, I think reminding yourself that, Hey, actually what we have done and the programs that we do have are very successful and there are people behind those numbers. And so just visiting programs, talking to directors and, and hear, and hearing about the wins through them, uh, really does kind of recenter you to say, okay, this is why we're doing it. Um, outside of it, I, I also like to crank the the loud music i think jasmine and i both have an affinity for 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 music that maybe not a lot of the older generations are into uh so often but uh instead of gardening uh i because i can't keep a plant alive for the life of me um i i am an avid runner i like to get off of work and and run myself into the ground <laughs> because there's nothing that gets you right back on track than getting dead exhausted and um and just feeling fresh after it Well, thank you so much for sharing those insights into how you keep yourself um, grounded and centered. And also thanks for just sharing your expertise with us today. I really appreciate getting to hear from you both. Appreciate the opportunity. My thanks to Jasmine and Brian for sharing their lives, their passion, and their expertise with us. I encourage you to reach out to your local, state, and federal representatives to encourage them to do what they can to create more housing in our state. Until next time, I'm Joel Kiekenfeld. Be good out there. The Anchored City Podcast is grateful for a grant from Resonate Global Mission and a partnership with Street Psalms, both of which contribute to making this podcast possible. And we're grateful for you, our listeners. If you are grateful for what you are hearing, please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and recommend us to your friends. 
You can support this podcast by selecting the Anchorage Urban Training Collaborative at smile.amazon.com when you shop at Amazon so that when you make a purchase, Amazon donates to us. Resources used to make this episode can be found in the show details. The Anchorage City Podcast is a production of the Anchorage Urban Training Collaborative. The mission of the collaborative is to train the heads, hands, and hearts of urban leaders to love their city and seek its peace. When we say peace, we mean the desire to see a world where all things are the way they're supposed to be for all people. Find us online at anchorageutc.org or on social media at anchorageutc. Our theme music is by Anchorage's own Monica Lutner. Monica Lutner.